After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. The art of political satire has been a staple of British television ever since the groundbreaking That Was The Week That Was. Throughout the 1980s, satire returned to mainstream light entertainment thanks to the formidable adult puppet show Spitting Image. Impressionist-turned-puppeteer Stephen Allen became a familiar voice to the great British public thanks to his irreverent portrayal of Margaret Thatcher, something which has surrounded his entire career. I was interested to hear more from the man behind the voice and get his take on a lifetime in comedy. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Steve Nallon. One of the most striking things about your career is that you began as a stand-up in the Northern Working Men's Club circuit during the 1970s. What sort of grounding was this in preparing you for a life in comedy? Uh, Well, it was tough, but when it worked, it was really good. They really liked you. Um, When it was bad, they really didn't like you and would literally throw stones. I had things, uh, throw things, I had things thrown at me. uh, money once there was <laughs> they were playing cards and I mean I came on to a, an audience that were just playing cards they were not interested in the entertainment and then I got some booze then I got some flicks of cards thrown at me and then I got money thrown at me I mean just <laughs> coppers nothing and then I got off so and then I was told that I was very lucky because the last comic they had from Yorkshire lasted two minutes. So that was you know, quite good. But that's all I knew. That's the only live entertainment I knew. So um, it was Leeds. And, and I, although there were theatres in Leeds, um, uh, I had no connection with them. So the only light entertainment that I had was the clubs, which I used to go to with my family. So I began in... Um, what you used to do you used to begin in a pub talent show, and mine was called the Highbury, which is in Leeds. And what they used to do, clubs used to do, uh, pubs rather used to do midweek talent shows. And it would just get people in to a pub midweek. They'd pay five quid if you won or something. Um, so that's how I started. I hated being myself on stage, and I always have. Uh, and it came up recently, somebody said, could you do it in your own voice? I said, no, I don't do that. I'm not that sort of performer. So what I used to do, I used to, um, my first thing I used to come out uh, with was dressed as Hilda Baker. So I had this big, big fur coat and I made some pearl necklace with ping pong balls, so huge ping pong balls around my neck which looked quite good actually and then a terrible wig and she was quite well known as this lady in, in those days she had her own tv show and stuff 
And so I used to come out um, as her and go, Ooh, it's lovely to be here. How are we all? We used to do my jokes, you see. Oh, yes, we used to do my jokes. Ooh, I can't stay much longer. What time is it now? Ooh, I must little, get a little hand put on my watch. And that was the big catchphrase. So then the wig would come off. The pearls would come off. And then I'd take the big fur coat off. And underneath the fur coat was a raincoat. Um, and then I'd get a berry. And suddenly I'd be Michael Crawford doing the Mike Feng Spencer. So I didn't speak as myself for about the first six minutes of the show because I just was I just, just couldn't do it. I don't know why. I just, I'm better now. I'm a lot better now at doing that. But I was only 16 and I just couldn't face talking to anybody as myself. So I was always sort of hidden behind these characters. Then Hilda Baker went, you know, she um, she disappeared from television screens. And then I just came on with the with the Berry and the and the um, Macintosh. That was a bit like Ronnie Barker. I think mm. I think I think that I'm much more of a comic actor like him than a comedian. I, I've learnt to be a comedian, but it doesn't come naturally to me, and I struggle. Um, I've always struggled being myself, and and what I do is an act. You know, I've got a talent, and I give my talent to the audience whether they like it or not, whatever. Whereas actually, the comedians I work with now, they put themselves on the stage. You know, they really put their life on the stage. They tell stories of their life. They tell stories about splitting up or the you know jobs they've done or the journeys they've been on or stories you know and I've never ever done that it's just not what I do um and if you want my opinion I'm probably personally happier for it because what you see with comedians is because they are putting themselves on stage and telling their story in their way about their life if the audience don't like them the audience don't find it funny they take it really personally, and I think that's why a lot of comedians go into sort of emotionally dark places. Whereas what I do, I'm what the clubs used to call a turn. I'm a turn, which means I've got I'm a you know I'm like a juggler or I'm like a magician. I've got um, a skill and I present it to the audience, but I've never ever put myself on stage, and I don't like the idea of doing that. I still don't. In terms of icons of Impressionism, Britain has a very rich history. I'm thinking of John Bird doing Harold Wilson on TW3, and of course the great Mike Yarwood. How important were these moments in shaping TV Impressionism? <laughs> Got right to the end of that. I'll say it again. I think what he was trying to say when he was mentioning Harold Wilson... Uh, uh, well, John Bird, who I worked with, yeah, I mean, he looked like Harold Wilson. That's one of the advantages that he had. He did actually look like Harold Wilson. And I was really impressed by John Bird because um, I didn't, it was slightly before my time as TW3, but I knew who he was because they had done a test um, on his voice and they'd compared his impersonation of Harold Wilson to the real thing. And it was like one of those sort of lines that go up and down on a, um, you know, in a, 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 on the screen, they really said that he was absolutely spot on. He absolutely got it perfectly right. Uh, what he did, uh, what I think my Yarwood did that that has been not appreciated and should be, is that Mike Yarwood 
took people who were not funny and made them funny. So what you had before Mike Yarwood were impressionists, uh, Peter Kavanagh uh, in this uh, country and Rich Little in America. And what they would do, they would do their Humphrey Bogart or they would do their Cary Grant or whether... And the traditional way of, of an American doing an impersonation act would be to... Um, Say, I was at I was at a Hollywood party the other day, and guess who was there? Humphrey Bogart. Say hello, Humphrey, and then they do Humphrey Bogart, and he was talking to Cary Grant, and then they do then they do a Cary Grant, and people say, well, you know, it's very accurate. But what Mike Yarwood did was take people who were not remotely conceived as funny, like Patrick Moore on Sky at Night, like Eddie Waring who did the rugby league commentary. And he would find these people and he would turn them into these wonderful comic creations. And that was a great gift. And I think it's terribly, he's terribly underestimated from that point of view. Because he wasn't just impersonating somebody. He was adding an entirely new dimension to who that person was. And that included Brian Clough, which was one of the very first voices I ever did. I stole it off Mike Yarwood, but... Um, We'll come on to him in a second because I worked with him. But um, because the reason I suddenly knew I could do impressions was because Mike Yarwood was doing Brian Clough and all the lads used to come into school on the Monday morning and talk about the Mike Yarwood show because it was a big show. And somebody, one of the lads said, I can do Brian Clough if I hold my nose. And I said, well, listen, I can do Brian Clough without holding my nose. I don't have to hold my nose. And they said, how do you do that? I thought, I don't know, but I can do it. And, I mean, instinctively, I was just learning to speak from the nose. You know, all voices come from different places. Um, my own voice is quite at the front. In fact, you get lots of television presenters whose voices are at the front, or actually even further out. So somebody like Cilla Black. Oh, Cilla Black is right out here. That's where she placed her voice. It's right, right out here. Um, and Grown North is the same. It's right out here because that's what they do. They are presenters. They are pushing their voice out. Whereas certain people um, such as uh, uh, Hitchcock or um, uh, Henry Kissinger, their voices are really, really hidden at the back of the throat. And uh, Richard Griffiths, who I worked with, was a very good actor. He's also a very good voice man. And we had a long chat one day, and I'd never thought of this before. He said, look, who are the people that have got, got the greatest secrets in their lives? Henry Kissinger has got secrets. Alfred Hitchcock had an entire career based on secrets. And that is where they place their voice. It's hidden right at the back of the throat. And if you listen to... Um, people speaking like 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 Hitchcock, which I can't do because it's so far back. But you listen to Henry Kissinger; he's got one of the deepest voices, one of the most gravelly voices, because it's so far back of the throat. Um, and what impressionists do on a technical level is simply know instinctively where to put the voice. Um, and mine is at the front, and therefore I find it quite easy to do those frontal voices. And Thatcher was a typical example of a quite sort of middle to front of the voice I find it very very difficult to do voices that are at the back an example of that would be 
Oh, the Frankie Howard, you know, Frankie Howard is... Because now, now, because it's a growl, you see, it's a growl, you see, because he had secrets. Oh, yes, he had secrets. And, and, and that is right at the back of the throat. And that's much... I can do it, but it's much less natural for me to do it. So I'm much happier doing those um, voices that are at the front. I forgot what your question was now. I meandered, meandered off. The 80s was extremely rich for Impressionism with people like Kate Robbins, Les Dennis, Dustin G, and even to an extent, Kenny Everett. Why do you think this decade spawned so many Impressionists? Well, I think that, again, we have to thank Mark Yarwood for it. Until Mark Yarwood came along, nobody had really done impersonations. He was the first one, for example, to do a member of the royal family. People forget that now. He did Prince Charles. And it was a bit of a scandal in the paper that this, you know, comedian impersonating a member of the royal family, should this be allowed, it was discussed. And it was really quite a, a you know, quite risque, I think, for him at the time to do it. And he did a brilliant one. And then what happened? Everybody copied him. Everybody just got on the bandwagon and copied him. And then he, he said to me, because we worked together on his last series of Thames when he was having personal problems and, and was coming to the end of his performing life in, 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 in terms of doing television shows. He said to me, he said, do you know, Steve, everybody I impersonate is older than me because a young man impersonating somebody older is funny because the cheeky chappy, the young cheeky chappy impersonating somebody older can be fun but an old man nearly 60 impersonating the young up-and-coming people of 30 no it's not funny there's something odd about that and he sort of realized that his time was coming to an end because there was nobody younger than himself that he was impersonating and and i've been realizing the same thing for the past 10 years and that's why I'm sort of trying to get out of it. But um, oh, I, I am the UK Gold Impressionist. I do all the people that appear on UK Gold. Anyway, so but 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 so so the answer to your question uh, is that I think Mark Yarwood started it, but the eighties also was opening up in terms of um, different types of television. So you had what you'd call shiny floor television. Uh, LE television, light entertainment television, which the Dustin G and Les, Les Dennis did. Um, and brilliant, you know, brilliant. But they were doing people from the Coronation Street. And again, they did what Mike Yarwood did. They took these characters on Coronation Street that were funny, but, but funny dramatically. And then they turned them into these wonderful, exaggerated comic characters. But really, from my point of view, you suddenly had the alternative comedy circuit um, coming along. And if you were an impressionist on that, you had to do something different. You couldn't do Frank Spencer. You certainly couldn't do Hilda Baker. You had to find a different, different route. And my route, because uh, I did the, I did, you know, the, uh, the, I did the Tunnel Club, which was run by Malcolm Hardy. I mean, I'd survived that only just. As Thatcher, but I used to do with, with Thatcher was I used to take questions from the audience. So I used to come on and, and I never had an act. I just used to, and then you, I had the act because I had all the answers that people, you know, used to, um, uh, the questions that people used to ask ready for me. But um, 
Uh, and then, of course, you've got satire, or, or the beginning of satire with spitting image and stuff, and, and also, to some degree, Saturday Night Live. Um, and, um, you know, I did Thatcher, Chris Barry did Reagan um, on that. We did a live show. And then, you know, satire opened up the possibility of... Um, I was always interested in politics, so, so on spitting image, I did a lot of... You know, I, did, I did Roy Hattersley, who was a character who did all the spitting... I also did Enoch Powell, and, uh, and I also did Shirley Williams, because I sort of, many, many of the impressionists, I, you know, didn't always knew who these people were. I mean, but I, you know, it's not slightly unfair, but one or two didn't know who they were. But, um, but I sort of knew, you know, all the members of the cabinet and stuff, so I, I could sort of volunteer myself to do those jobs. In 1984, you joined forces with the cream of political satire for the heavyweight spitting image. What reservations did you have in mocking the establishment? Well, none, because <laughs> I was 24. <laughs> I mean, that's the point, really. I think that it, it, satire is really a, a young person's game, whether it's a man or a woman, I think. It, it, it's not... Uh, it, it, it's, you're sort of allowed to do, and you should do. And I was very, very proud of Spitting Image, how we pushed boundaries... Um, you know, Mark Yawat had done the Royal Family, but we had the most wonderful sketch with the naming of the baby um, uh, of William. He would have been William, I think. The naming of the baby, which was just the most wonderful. It still is very funny. Or the Queen played Monopoly, and she kept winning because she owned everything. So she would land on the railways. She'd go, oh, I own that. And then take all the money. Oh, I, the old Kent Road, oh, I own that. It, it was just wonderfully funny, you know, and... and um, and and you know and we could do in the, particularly the early days of spitting image, it was actually quite satirical. We had uh, somebody called um, we never quite he was called Jeremy, but it was clearly Hitler. It was a very ancient Hitler living next door to Thatcher and offering her advice. You know, and it was quite a dangerous little bit of satire. Was that? Mm. Sadly, it only lasted two episodes, but we 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 should have done more of that. Mm. Well, let's talk about Margaret. Growing up in a mining community, what was your personal opinion of the Iron Lady? My grandfather was a miner, um, so um, uh, I didn't really know what mining meant. I was a, a kid. I used to. He was. He was down pit. Is what they used to say. He was down pit, uh, and I sort of had this image of him digging a big pit. I was only, you know, six or seven, so I sort of didn't. It took me a while to then realise what he actually was doing. Anyway. Um, it was the two sides of my family. One was the labour side, which my father's side, staunchly labour, trade unions. And then my mother's side were aspirational Tories. My mother was a, um, a Tory. My father was labour. That was the politics of it. Um, so um, my grandmother on my mother's side, who I eventually went to live with for complex family reasons, but I went to live with her, she hated um, Scargill and she hated the unions. And so, but I was going to, a, you know, a nice grammar school and getting liberal education. So we used to argue about everything because I, I was sort of turning more, more liberal um, in my teens. So my politics is complicated because I, um, you know, I, I, there were trade unionists and the very strong trade unionists in the family. And yet my, my grandmother who not had nothing. I mean, you know, when she died, they found a couple of grand under the bed and that was it. I mean, she 
She had never had property, but she was a great believer in people living their life as they wanted to, which she encouraged me to do. Uh, she didn't. She she wasn't terribly keen on the idea of me going into the entertainment world because you know precarious business. But once I'd made the decision, she just said to me, "It's your life. You do what you want with it. It's the best thing you can possibly say to anybody, really, at that age. There's no pressure not to go into the entertainment world." The late great Janet Brown also gained a reputation for her impression of Thatcher. How did you go about making your own unique interpretation of her? Uh, it, the interesting thing about Janet Brown, if you listen to Janet Brown's impersonation of Thatcher and you listen to Thatcher, it sounds like Thatcher. If you listen to Marnie's interpretation of Thatcher and then listen to Thatcher, it sounds like Thatcher. But if you put Janet Brown and me together, we don't sound like each other. So what impressionists do, they find their take on the voice. They find their way of interpreting the voice. And what Janet Brown was very good at was that very slightly patronising uh, way of speaking that Mrs Thatcher had in interviews and the way she would be slightly posher and so on. She was very, very good at that and that was part of the Thatcher character. I think what I did, which was very different to the way Janet uh, pre presented it, I went for uh, what I would call the jugular the, the passion, the more passionate side of Thatcher. I believe this. I want it to be the case. So there was never any worry about, oh goodness me, I don't care what people think about me. This is what I believe. This is what I want. So I went for that sort of voice. Whereas Janet Brown went for the slightly more patronising way of speaking that you were getting interviews. And we both exaggerated the different aspects. Both were truthful, but both found different aspects of the Thatcher voice to play with. And uh, what, what Spitting Image wanted wasn't an impersonation. Um, they wanted a caricature. So I said, okay, um, why don't I do it much more like she is in the House of Commons? Because There was no television in the House of Commons in those days, but radio. So you could hear people because uh, that had been um, uh, been around since the late seventies, but you couldn't see them. That came much later on, um, and so for, we knew what Mrs. Thatcher sounded like in the House of Commons, and she did have this very shrill voice because she was shouting above people, uh, and she had to shout. So I said, "Well, why don't I put that aspect of the voice into the puppet voice, as it were? It'll match the voice. It'll match the puppet because it's much more austere." So. So my theft became much more like that. The right honourable gentleman doesn't understand. So even when she was just talking to Geoffrey Howe, she always used to have a Geoffrey. And then suddenly go to the narrow way of doing it. She had that sort of trusting me, like, is it Shere Khan in Jungle Book? I was just think that, that bit where the, the eyes go funny and he's trying to mesmerise you. Bit of, she was very good at that. But my personal opinion of Thatcher, I don't know. I, 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 as I say, I, 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 my political allegiances are somewhat split in terms of family. Um, I suspect economically she was necessary, but I despair at what she left behind. I guess the 80s was such a rich time for political satire, with such a powerful woman in charge of the country. 
Although Thatcher divided opinion, in terms of satire she was invaluable. With this in mind, what were your feelings on her resignation in 1990? Not only was it the end of an era for the country, but do you think political satire began to wane? Um, well, there's two questions there. Let me take the first one first, if I may, and then answer the second one afterwards. I think that, yes, it was a time, and I saw it coming because I'd seen what happened to Mike Yarwood. I'd seen what happened to his career once... Because uh, he, he did... Well, he did a very good James Callaghan, and he did, you know, Edward Truth, and of course, Harold Wilson. But once that trio had disappeared and Thatcher had come along and a whole new people had come along, he, 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 he lost he lost that he didn't do any of the people um, um, at all. He tried Thatcher once, but he wasn't very good. Anyway, so I saw what could happen to somebody if what was seen to be their main character disappeared. So when I worked with him, he said, uh, we'll do the sketch and I want you to come on at the end dressed as yourself and we'll introduce us to the audience. And, and I said, no, no. He said, why not? I said, I want to look beyond the, the end of Thatcher. Nobody knows what I look like as I am normally. Um, but I, therefore, I don't want anybody to know what I look like as Thatcher. It'll also spoil the illusion. So I saw, but the point is, I saw it coming. I saw it coming personally for me and also politically, I saw it coming for her. Um, the second part of your question was about the, the, the wane of, of satire. Um, I think the huge advantage of that axis, which was Gorbachev, Reagan and Thatcher, was you had such clear identities. You had such clear identities with what Reagan represented. Uh, he was a a cowboy and he represented you know a, a, a shining city on the hill I think was one of the phrases he used Thatcher had a incredibly d divisive economic views and so on but they were replaced by George Bush what was George Bush about nobody ever really knew uh, John Major nobody quite knew where he stood and Yeltsin who was pissed most of the time but other than that wasn't as interesting as Gorbachev so in a way, um, I'm not quite sure it was satire that uh, waned. More the polarities of comedy were, were taken away. So Mrs. Thatcher, one of the greatest comic creations of the 20th century, removed and replaced by John Major, likewise in America. So those clear... I mean, and ironically now, uh, it, you, you, it, Spitting Midge would do incredibly well because you have Putin and you have the greatest comic creation of all time running the White House. I mean, you, you, in a sense, how do you, why do you need satire? You know what I mean? Why do you need satire when you've got this? You couldn't make that up. You know what I mean? You just, you couldn't, you couldn't make it up. I know there's lots of serious stuff happening in America and, and it's, to me, it's what's happened over the last few days has been the worst time in America for a long time. But, but as a, as a, as a figure, uh, you he's beyond satire. Maybe you, I don't know, I don't know. I slightly despair. In 2015, you reprised your impersonation of Margaret Thatcher for Jonathan Maitland's Dead Sheep. How different was the character to, to perform in light of her death in 2013? Well, she, when she died, um, nobody, uh, 
wanted anything to do with what I did as Thatcher because there was this sort of period, this mourning period. But that happens with all impersonations. It was the same with people like Kenneth Williams. You know, you, when Kenneth Williams died, you couldn't then go out the next day and go, oh, no, yes, when I went over, you'd say you couldn't do it because he, he just died. It was slightly weird. In fact, I always found it rather weird to do a voice of somebody after they had died in a, in a slightly creepy way because um, uh, I just find it odd because they, they're no longer with us and I'm still doing the voice. So for the first few days, um, I, I just couldn't, you know, I just couldn't do it. Um, when Thatcher did die, it was expected um, and I did some television stuff, but the immediate after, after uh, Marth was that that out of respect, nobody wanted anything, you know, to do with Thatcher. Um, and, but then little, little jobs came in and then suddenly be she became historical. So you then can start tackling it again. It's about five years or so afterwards that people can start thinking there's no disrespect here. And actually the thing about Jonathan's play, it wasn't Thatcher's story. Uh, it, was, it was Geoffrey Howe's story. And Mrs. Thatcher was a big player in it, but um, she was essentially somebody came in and out of the story. Um, from, an, from, an, from my point of view, it was great because um, I'd always played Mrs. Thatcher for laughs, so at least Mrs. Thatcher, I knew what I was doing. I, was, I knew that you know the point of me doing the act was, was a degree of irony. Um, and uh, even if Mrs. Thatcher didn't realise what she was saying, at least I did. You see, I was in the I was in the north of England this week in Watford, and you know, so she'd say those things, and and she didn't really realise what she was saying, and that's you know, and they were trying to get less. Um, but in the play, uh, we play Mrs. Thatcher without a sense of humour, which got a laugh, but that was very odd. So ironically, the only time Mrs. Thatcher got a laugh was when she showed she didn't get what the joke was. Um, so from my point of view, it was great. And going back to Ronnie Barker, uh, it was much closer to what Ronnie Barker was doing with 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 things like Porridge, not his two Ronnie show, but the things with Porridge, where he was really creating a very real, a, a believable character that had its comic moments, but also you know. So so it was more it was more acting and even less comic acting, I think. Um, and people were lovely to me as well. People. Uh, I was always worried working with actors that they would be a bit patronising and treat me as the impressionist who's come to, you know, be a, an actor, um, uh, which I've had. I have had experience of somebody once, I auditioned for a play once, and somebody said to me, oh, is it when you've been, is it you've been in television now? They said, yes, and you now wish to join the legitimate theatre. I thought, Fuck you! I'm not going to join the legitimate theatre if I get that sort of attitude. So I, I didn't get the job, and I, I froze at the interview. I just went, I can't work with you if you have that attitude. I can't work with you. So, um, but, uh, but no, the actors were great, and they just treated me like an actor. You know, there was no issue of me being an impersonator joining it, which was nice. As a writer, when creating characters, I feel the need to hear their voice talking to me. When honing an impression, what's the process of perfecting the character? The, the, the best voices just happen, and it's magic, and I don't know how they happen, but they just happen. You, 
you th- I'll tell you a, a story. I, I decided to do, a, um, I wanted to do a routine about um, TV detectives. I was going to put in my act. It was going to be, I was going to do all the TV detectives. And so I, I listened to uh, a very, very long recording of um, Morse, um, which was read by Kevin Waitley to get the Kevin Waitley voice, which I sort of, which is sort of north, northeast and, and doable. Um, I could never do John Thorpe properly because of exact, because again, he was right at the back of the throat voice, which is very unnatural for me. Lewis, you know, it's all that Lewis sort of thing. I found that very difficult to do. I can do it. I can just do about two words and that's about it. Um, so I was thinking about doing this routine and I'd been practising Kevin Waitley for two hours on the way home. Put my bags down and without knowing it, out popped Joan Hickson as Miss Marple. Oh, and suddenly I was doing this, you see, and I had absolutely no idea where it came from. And it was like magic, it just popped out. Oh, yes. Marks and Spencer's still lemonade. Oh, no, Chief Inspector, I wouldn't drink from that. That's where the arsenic has been placed, you see. So, and, and, and to my knowledge, I have no idea where that came from. I still don't. Occasionally, um, you... I think it's by osmosis, you know, you, you, you watch people, you soak them in. Sometimes it's very technical where you place the voice um, and sometimes it's um, the, the most difficult one I've ever did was Robin Williams. And the thing about Robin Williams is he's a comic actor and a trickster figure and a shapeshifter himself. And therefore he has loads and loads of rhythms and he's always changing. So, so I spent several days just going around my house just doing the rhythm. So I would go, oh, sir. Just to get that, and then you add words, yes, no, and yes, oh, by the end of it, you know, you're going up and down, and you're saying, oh, yes, 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 no, 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 goodbye, Vietnam, and, and, but he had the most wide-ranging, oh, yes, there's the impressions, there's the voice he recognises, he hasn't got the slightest idea who, who Hilda Baker is, but he knows who this guy is, oh, yes, he likes this one. <laughs> like that one. I do like that one. That's really good, actually. Your face, even your face, you look like a woman. Oh, yes, you know, that's. You can, because it's almost impossible, you know, to do a voice and not have the face. Because it's the way the, the, way the voice is shaped is in the, the way the shape is. Um, it's almost impossible to do the shape of one person and the voice of somebody else. It's. it's psychologically in your brain it just doesn't work but he he took weeks to do and it was very very technical and it was it was about going around the house going because he has that and then suddenly he because he just well he used every single uh rhythm in his voice his voice is not that dissimilar to mine it was very up front it's not at the back it's not a difficult voice to do um uh um Slightly nasal, but not too much. So, it, it, so it's not a stressful voice to do. But in terms of the rhythms, that was the most difficult thing to get. Um, and there were characters I've turned down the play last year because I don't know why I've never been able to do Larry Grayson properly as well. So I, I was offered a play and people think, well, you'd be brilliant as Larry Grayson. I said, do you know, I've never been able to... I can do a caricature version of it. 
but I can't make it part of who I am. It sounds maybe sounds a bit wankerish, I know, but I, I think that it, it, to, to be the best that you can, or do it the best you can, you've somehow got to make it a part of you. Um, and with a psychological discipline that I'm not Margaret Thatcher, you know, I mean, I wasn't, I'm not crackers. I didn't go on stage believing myself to be Margaret Thatcher. But somehow you you absorb it or you make it part of yourself. I could never do that with Lena Grayson. Um, however, when they did Are You Being Served on the television last year, which I thought was atrocious, I was hated it. Um, and they got a very fine actor, um, Jason, I forget his second name, but he came and did the, the but he did it just camp um, as Mr. Humphreys. Well, actually, I used to love, I used to love doing John in because it was such a very, you know, it's, it's very similar to my own voice and and, um, and 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 the early versions of how you've been served. It was very real. I mean, it was you know, it was very natural and real. Um, and so I, so you know, I, I, but nobody asked me, so I, <laughs> I didn't do it. Um, but I, yeah, I am drawn to certain people. I don't know why. I, I, I don't try to think about it that, that often. The only thing I would say about Mrs. Thatcher was that I was brought up by very strong women um, on in the family, um, and although they talk nothing like Mrs. Thatcher, uh, I have a, 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 a lot of my female friends are strong, independent women. And we get on quite well, um, but I'm not an alpha male. I don't think, in, if you want to look at it like that. But they tend to be alpha females, and I tend to be whatever what what, what an alpha male isn't. So we get on quite well, I think, psychologically. Or maybe I want to be an alpha female. Maybe that's what the truth is. Maybe that's what my <laughs> real psychological quest is to be an alpha female. <laughs> Oh, well, that's a thought. I've never thought of it like that. You've taught me something. A bit worrying. <laughs> you want to be a matriarch? Yes! <laughs> well, you see, I'm drawn to those. Uh, um, Anne Whittacombe is another one that I'm drawn to. Um, because I, 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 I don't agree with her. But I greatly admire her, uh, her way of um, dealing with things. And I met her recently. And uh, I was introduced to her. And it was all Anne and meet Steve. So I thought she was rather intimidating. And so, and she said, oh, I hear you do me. I And I answered as her. I said, yes, I do you. And uh, uh, and can I point out to you, uh, Anne, uh, that you have two notes in your voice. Uh, you have a high note and a low note at the same time. And she said, yes, I have. Uh, she rather, oh, yes, I have. So, uh, which is really technically very difficult to do. And, and people just thought, oh, that's an easy voice to do. They'll do it. And then they go, ah, I can't do it because it's really quite difficult. Because uh, you're almost singing two songs at the same time. They're both going on at the same time. Anyway, um, so I said to her, um, I said, do you know who you are similar to? Somebody else who has two notes in their voice. And she said, who's that? And I said, oh, Miss Simpson, oh, Miss Simpson, he has a two-voice, he has a high-voice, and an almost happening at the same time. <laughs> and she had not the slightest idea who Elmer Simpson was. Really? Right, and then she walked away. <laughs> Maybe she thought it was a 
politician or an actor, but she didn't. I don't think she knew who Homer Simpson was. <laughs> Looking back at your career, what's your proudest achievement? I th I don't think like that. I don't think in terms of um, um, uh, I th I do think in terms of achievement. I had a, a friend of mine who complicated reasons, um, believed himself to be a failure and um, and basically drank too much and ended his life drinking too much. And he regarded himself as a failure and always had. And I sat him down one day, it was too late by then, but basically I basically said, look, there's a great difference between success and achievement. Success is what somebody else gives you with rewards. And if you don't pass your exam, as he didn't pass an exam when he was younger, he regarded himself as a failure. But that, I said, that's somebody else deciding whether you are a success or a failure. Don't think of your life in those terms. Think of your life in terms of achievement, because achievement is something you give yourself. You set out to do this job. Was it successful? Did you get an award for it? Did you make lots of money? It doesn't matter. Did you do the job well? So one of... Um, I did three one-man shows about ten years ago. And I really enjoyed those. And there was one I did where it was uh, Alice in Wonderland. I did Alice in Wonderland, Homer's Odyssey and Christmas Carol. And... Each took about a year to write and put together, and, and I had great fun doing it. It was hard work. The least successful was Alice in Wonderland, because I took it to Edinburgh, and I had the worst bronchitis. I, you know, I was desperately ill. I, I couldn't hardly move, uh, and I just had to stay there coughing for two weeks in bed. I, it was proper, proper, proper poorly. Um, so the show was a big, big failure. But for me, it was a great achievement. Because I had done a tiny little version at Buxton uh, as a tryout, and we had one show where every single joke had worked. And my director, she said, "This is brilliant." Every, she said, "The audience absolutely got it. Every single joke they got, and they loved it." And they said, "You know, that's one of the best shows." There's only sixty people, but those sixty people allowed me to say that I had achieved what I wanted. To achieve with that show and um, I don't have a big house and a swimming pool and that sort of idea of success um, but my nephew rang me up one day and he said I'm terribly proud of you I said well that's very kind of you but you know there's a specific reason he said because you've always done what you wanted to do and uh, not always successfully but I've done what I wanted to do and, and I'm not going to die wondering. So what's next for Steve Nellon? Funny you should ask, because <laughs> I'm writing at the moment. I'm not going to tell you what I'm writing, uh, because I'm slightly superstitious about that sort of thing. But I've always wanted to write um, a story. Um, I've written plays, and I've had plays on the radio and, and stuff like that. Again, not hugely successful, because radio doesn't pay very well, and blah, 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 blah. Um, but... I did a couple of plays which I'm really proud of, if you like, um, and 
I, I was I think they I thought they achieved what we set out to achieve. Um, and now I'm in the process almost of taking a year out from performing, not quite, but almost, you know, because I'm turning work down at the moment to finish what I want to write. So if it ever gets published, I would love to come back here and have you read it and then we can talk about that, but not until then. Oh, that would be great. We'd love to do that, wouldn't we? Yeah. I need all the publicity I can get if it's yeah, published. No, brilliant. But no, I, I'm, I'm working very, I, and I don't know whether it will work. I don't. It's very, very difficult to get things published. Yeah, thank you very much. That's thank you. Thank you very much to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy? Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.